And then we can hear the truth taught by our brother here tonight. Thank you for this facility and for uh, all the luxuries of life that we here in America take for granted every day. It's your blessings on this time now. Put away the uh, uh, personal concerns that we can focus on your word and the teaching about to come forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, thank you, everybody. Uh, Ollie Olson will be uh, speaking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evenings here. So we hope you all get to come back. Uh, a great topic, the character, character of God. And I know that we're going to learn a lot. So welcome, our brother, Ollie. Thank you. thank you. Welcome to all of you. We know that we're running in competition with another meeting here tonight, as well as things going on in other churches. So we appreciate your time here. And involvement. It's good to see so many from not only Emmanuel, uh, Pastor Mike and Sharon are in Africa right now, so they're out of the country. Uh, but uh, so good to have you here and see people that we've known from other churches as well as here at Emmanuel. Uh, before I start with the study tonight, I want to mention three uh, new things that we have available. One is a little book on Joel, which Pat has written just recently. Um, Joel is a very contemporary book. You may remember that it was Joel that Peter quoted at Pentecost when he said, It's come to pass in the latter days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on your maidservants and men servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's pretty contemporary to our time, is it not? We need another move of God in our time. The book is only $5, which is basically our cost. And then Pat had written a, a book earlier called Thou Shalt Call in the Name. This is a revision to that. And uh, these are available now, too, at $15, which is basically our cost. And then we have to introduce tonight a book called The Character of God. And that's the theme that we're using uh, throughout this week in the four nights. Now, they will be taped on uh, CDs. And uh, as usual, as normal, the CDs are only $15 for the complete set. But if uh, the book is a companion to that or the CDs are a companion to the book, so should you choose to get both of them, this normally is $15, which again is our cost. The two together will only be 25 So uh, keep that in mind if you would like to, you'd like to see Pat about that. Last time I was with you, for many of you, at uh, Mother Alliance, Pat was in the hospital and spent nine days in the hospital when she finally got out. So it was a tough time for her, and uh, she is better now. Still, uh, as our bodies age, energy isn't the same as it was once, as some of you would attest to very quickly. But uh, she is better, and so good to be back. We decided after last trip that we're not going to do this drawing driving <laughs> anymore uh, because it's uh, one not real safe because this event could have happened in the, uh, on the road somewhere. And also, our bodies are not the same shape they were once, as yours will sometimes uh, remind you of as well. So anyway, okay, we want to get in. I'd like to read just a short section from this book because we'll introduce this thing. Uh, the book starts with the premise that God wants us to know Him, has revealed Himself to us through the Bible. In fact, God has gone to great lengths in his word to describe in human terms just how he is. 
you may, you'll probably see that as you read through the scriptures, you know, like under his wings and things like that. Okay? Using illustrative language that we can relate to. For example, we see God as our refuge, a place to run and take shelter under trouble passes, our, our guide who leads us over dark, rough, and unfamiliar roads, our majestic king who is sovereign over all peoples and nations and has an eternal kingdom that far exceeds anything on earth, or our judge who will one day come and judge every person's deeds, or our compassionate father who loves and disciplines his children and our shepherd, and so on. We all have various and different concepts of God based on our backgrounds, what we've been taught, and life experience, and who knows what else. But why not just go to the source? (laughs) Why not investigate what God actually tells us about himself as revealed through the Bible? Once we start looking, we will find there's plenty God has told us about himself. So this book identified 48 different character traits that God has. So I to mention that first of all. Okay, we want to look at some introductory things first of all. God wants us to know him. Now that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? If back in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, God said on the sixth day of creation, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And uh, therefore it says God made Man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now this is destiny and dignity of the highest level, is it not? There is no other creature in all the universe, according to the Bible, that has been created in the very image of God. That is destiny and dignity of the highest order. And so we need to note that God, being a spirit being, would want desperately to communicate to his loving creatures, right? Right? And because he's a spirit, doesn't appear to people normally, although he could if he wanted to, therefore has given us a book. The book is the Bible. And the Bible is that which represents the character of God throughout the whole uh, book, telling us who he is, telling us what he does, telling us why he does what he does, usually, uh, telling us all kinds of things, preparing us for our destiny, which is not here in life and time. You probably realize that. (laughs) Okay? Because we are destined to spend an eternity with him. This is only a short period of time. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians calls it a tent. (laughs) Just a a thing that you do on a very short uh, period of time. And our bodies are like that. And like a tent, they wear out. As you know, if you like that kind of thing, you have to replace tents every once in a while because they just wear out. So, God wants us to know Him. And so He's given us all kinds of information about the Bible, whether we realize it or not, that rec- helps us to recognize just how he, who He is. Now, there are scriptures like Isaiah 55 that says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. You think, well, that means you can't know him. He's just beyond us. Uh, and Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how, how inscrutable are his ways. But if we go back to Isaiah 55 and look at the context, the passage that talks about thoughts and ways being higher than us is prefaced by, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will will, uh, pardon. Okay? Because my thoughts are not like your thoughts. 
Because we are told that we can think like he does. Not totally, of course, but we can think in the same manner that he does. Because we are told in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. Now, that's a, a big issue. Okay. Secondly, he has done, gone to great lengths in his word to describe in human terms who he is, using illustrative language that we can relate to. And then a partial listing of some of these character qualities. God is king, he is powerful, he's love, he's holy, gracious, glorious, father, savior, great, righteous. And something we need to realize about our great God is he's never inconsistent with any of his qualities. He is always totally consistent with all of his character. So therefore, if we say that God is judge, we realize that he has to judge out of a heart that is loving. They cannot be separated from each other. See, there are a lot of people that say, well, the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath, and, and he just was kind of a <clears throat> boisterous, warrior-like type God, and then he got nice. <laughs> they don't say it that way, but that's the implication. When he got to the New Testament, and then God is loved throughout all the Old Test- New Testament. If we realize, however, if we look carefully at the Scriptures, we'll find that there is much, much mercy of God on the part of the God of the Old Testament. There are, there are more verses about the mercy and the love and the compassion of God in the Old Testament than in the New. We would also find that Jesus at certain times could be rather strict in terms of what he would require of people, right? So we see God is always consistent with his character no matter what that character is. As we consider these marvelous qualities of God, we will see the consistency of God throughout both the Old and the New Testament because God will always be true to himself. Now, before we get into the next uh, thing on the PowerPoint, I'd like you to turn with me to some scripture as some background. If you have Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Now, the thing about Judges 2 is that it follows immediately the wonderful time that the Israelites had under Joshua. Whereas the group in the Old Testament that uh, were led by Moses in the book of Exodus... And we're nothing but complainers all the way. The generation that came up under Joshua was an entirely different generation. They were a very godly group of people. And remember that uh, all of the people in the Old Testament above the age of 59 died in the wilderness. There was no one above the age of 60 that entered the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. They all, God just let them all die. And that generation that rose up in Joshua's generation was the best generation they had. Because at one occasion, if you remember the story, when they came to Jericho, there was one man of the Israelites whose name was Achan. And remember that he took some of the forbidden things and, and, and buried them in his tent. And God had to bring that whole man's family under judgment because he did that one thing. That's how, how holy these people were. And so in the latter part of the book of Joshua, as he called them together for a farewell address, turn with me back to, Josh, to Joshua, then 24, please. And you remember the passage familiar to you because it's often on a wall in Christians' homes. Uh, Choose ye this day whom you will serve, uh, whether the gods of the Amorites, and so on. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what Joshua said to the people. 
Now, I'd like you to look at something that follows that. In verse 16 of Joshua 24, the people answered and said, Well, far be it from us that we should serve or forsake the Lord and serve other gods. I mean, after all, the next verse, God is the one who took us out of the land of bondage and brought us into this place that is uh, our father's and drove out all these people. And then please note verse 19. You'd think that this is wonderful now, you see. The people are responding and they're saying, Oh, that far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord. And Joshua says to him, verse 19, You can't serve the Lord. You can't do it. Because he saw that there was a tendency on the part of their hearts. He's a jealous God. And he's going to do everything. Uh, he's going to demand everything of you. And then so the people, he wanted to shock them, stir them up, shake their cage, right? And in verse 21... The people said, in all seriousness now, no loose commitment here. No, we will choose to serve the Lord. And what Joshua said to them in the next verse was, you are witnesses against yourselves that you've chosen to do this. Okay, now with that in mind, let's go to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, and looking at verse uh, 7, tells us, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua. Okay, so all that generation uh, that walked with God in the days of Joshua were godly people. Uh, then there was the next generation that are called elders here that survived Joshua. And those people walked with the Lord and they'd seen the great work which he had done. But in verse uh, 10, it says, All that generation were gathered to their fathers and there rose another generation. And here is the key word, they didn't know the Lord. That's tragedy. See, they still had their religious practices that had been brought in from all of those rules, regulations, and things were given in the uh, books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they had this key thing missing. They didn't really know the Lord. And because of that, it says in verse 11, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served these false gods. Because the key thing was not that they didn't have all the ritual that went with it, didn't have all of the substance by which they could live holy lives before God. The key was they didn't really know the Lord. And that's the thing that we need to know it, you see. Okay. In Isaiah 1.3, turn with me to that passage, please. Book of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. Interesting comment that Isaiah makes. He said, An ox knows its owner, a donkey its major manger and stall, that's the way it is with animal husbandry, by the way. Animals always go to where they're fed and cared for. Now, my background is dairy farming. And there was something that dairy cattle always did. You know, I lived in Minnesota, so it was a lot of cold weather in the wintertime. But in the fall, spring, and summer, they would be out on what was called pasture. And there was one thing you could always guarantee, and that is at the time for milking, they always came home by themselves. You heard the phrase, you can believe that till the cows come home? 
Because they do. Another thing about cows uh, is that they're creatures of habit. So therefore, in our barn, we had 21 stalls for 21 cows, and they know exactly which stall they were to go into. And if one cow got in the wrong stall, it was utter chaos in the whole... <laughs> That's not meant to be a joke, but anyhow, there was chaos in the whole barn because these are creatures of heaven. Now, he uses the illustration here, you see, and says, look at the animals. They know who their master are. Is they, they know where to go when they need comfort and feeding. They know they're smart enough to know that. But my people don't even know that, you see. Because the key is they don't know him. And therefore they substitute. Let's turn to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Beginning with verse 18 where it says, The wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Notice they pushed it down. For what is known about God is available to them through the wonderful creative world. But it says in verse 21, although they knew God once before, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Professing to be fools, they became professing to be wise, they became fools. And therefore, in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for the lie. By the way, it's a definite article there. Uh, They exchanged the truth about God for the lie because they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, which is blessed forever. And you'd say, well, we don't do that kind of thing in which there's grotesque idols that people worship. No, we do it in a more sophisticated way. We worship stuff. Don't we? See, in a materialist culture, we have a tremendous tendency and vulnerability to worship stuff. That's what we have. We'd never say it because it sounds too crass, but we do it nonetheless. We have a vulnerability to do it, right? You look at what Jesus taught so much in the parables. He talked about the vulnerability that exists, okay? They didn't honor God because they they didn't know him. Let's turn to uh, uh, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 6. And it says there, such knowledge is... Because he's talking about the tremendous ability that God has to know your very thought and everything about you. You quantity with all my ways. And therefore it says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from my spirit? Remember those words it talks about. And then when it gets down to verse 12, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me together in my mother's womb, which says a lot about abortion, does it not? And then it says in verse 14, this wonderful statement, I give thanks to you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now in the Hebrew text, it doesn't say it that way because we don't use the literal text to you make it grammatically correct in the language that you're translating into. But in the Hebrew text, it would read this way, if you were to be literal. I give thanks to thee, comma, fearful things, comma, I am wonderful. That's how it reads. Do you realize that there's a verse in the Bible that says you're wonderful? Don't ever call less than wonderful what God calls wonderful. 
So if somebody's trying to flatter you someday and say, oh, you're wonderful, you'd say, well, that's right, it says in the Bible. <laughs> what else is new, right? <laughs> right? See, there's never pride to agree with God. Right? <laughs> and so therefore, you can just say this, hold your head high and say, I'm wonderful, says that in the Bible. <laughs> As you look into your mirror, right? Let's turn to Job 19. Job went through this terrible time in his life. Uh, greatest example of suffering and agony this side of Jesus himself. But in Job 19, after he had been afflicted and didn't know why it happened or where it came from and was in utter despair, he came to this conclusion in 1925, As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. See, that's the knowledge of what he had in his life. I know that my Redeemer lives. That's the thing that you need to know, and that becomes the final word, is it not? I know that my Redeemer lives. Okay? Because if we know that, the rest of the information is really not so important. We need to know him. Okay. And Paul says this in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection that I might, uh, the power of his resurrection being, being like him in his death and uh, in his sufferings, something to that effect. But the first part says, I know, I know him, to know him and the power of his resurrection. Turn with me to John 14. The disciples hung around Jesus for three years, right? And you would think that Jesus taught them a lot, and he did, Right? I rather imagine it must have been a continual day-to-day -day teaching experience, don't you suppose? Can you imagine hanging around Jesus? That's all you did? Uh, well, of course, he was involved in ministry, but I mean, in all of your moments, you were hearing him teach, you were watching him, how he taught, you were trying to sense what he was thinking in terms of being important, you sensed his relationship with the Father. All these were training things for these apprentices people. They were apprentices. And so in John 14... We have this rather odd statement. Uh, Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to, comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. He's saying, in other words, the, the uh, shall we say, the agreement in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And Philip pipes up and says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Duh. You know? And Jesus said to him in verse 9, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you don't know me? See, it's still, they're still on the way. If we are discouraged sometimes in our lives, how slow our Christian walk seems to be, take heart took the disciples under the best teacher in the universe three years to get it through their head. Right? So you ought to be encouraged by that, not to slough off, but to realize that they had a difficult time. John 8, 32, 31 and 32. He's talking to some religious people and he said, If you abide in my word, my words abide in you, you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. To know the truth is to know Jesus. John 10, verse 27, where he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We 
see statements like that in the Bible, we don't realize the context of how it was so understandable to, to people at that day. Talk about shepherds and sheep and flocks and so on. We think of, of sheep flocks as being hundreds of sheep uh, that some corporate group is kind of in charge of, right? That was not so in the biblical times. Every shepherd had probably dozen to 20 sheep. That's it. That's as much as he could take care of, right? And during the day when they were out in the mild time of the year on pasture, there would be several of these flocks, maybe a whole bunch of flocks. Each one would have its own shepherd. And so <clears throat> if uh, the shepherd uh, saw one sheep going to a, you know, straying off, which they had a tendency to do, he'd call them by name because they had a name. Okay? Right. Now, let's supposing that one sheep is named uh, Mark, okay? <laughs> Got a sheep named Mark. And here goes Mark trailing off here. And the shepherd calls to Mark to come back. But there isn't these other flocks a Mark over there too. Now, why doesn't one of the Marks and all these other uh, groups of sheep come back to this shepherd? In fact, they don't even pay any attention to him, even though their name is the same. Because... The shepherd knows the sheep and they know his voice. Okay, that's the key for us, right? See, if we come to the point in our lives where we know the shepherd's voice, you'll never be fooled and tricked by counterfeits, ever. You'll be safeguarded because there's much warning about counterfeits, very true in our day, right? So if we know the shepherd, that's important. Okay, let's look at John fourteen twenty seven. These are just some background things to get into the main context in a moment. Verse 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will fast the Father, and he'll send you another comfort to be with you all, always. That is the Spirit of truth. Verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't behold him or, or doesn't know him. But you know him for two reasons. He abides with you, and he abides in you. You see, the great privilege that believers in the Lord have since Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit actually comes and takes up residence within the person of the believer. That is a fantastic, almost unbelievable concept, but true nonetheless. When you really think that through, it just blows you away. That the one of the persons of the Godhead actually dwells within your life? Well, that ought to regulate a whole bunch of behavior, shouldn't it? It should, right? But it's true. And it's a tremendous encouragement to realize that he actually dwells within you. Boy, what can, what can harm you, right? To harm you is to harm the Lord. He called you in various places in Scripture, it's, it's mentioned more than once, that you are the apple of his eye. That's the concern that he has for you. And nobody's going to mess with that. And if they do, they're messing with God himself. And that's pretty scary. Okay, let's go to Jeremiah 24-7. Just a couple more of these. Jeremiah 24-7 in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah, though he was a weeping prophet because the people were such a condition before him, yet had tremendous hope. So in 
Jeremiah 24, 7, it says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. And let's also go to chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 34, where he says, and regarding this time, the covenant time, in verse 34, they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There's coming a day. See, we see things in our world that are deteriorating very rapidly, and that's an understatement, right? It's, it's, uh, it seems like it, whatever direction you go, uh, there's another... Uh, shall we say, invasion into Christian values. Is there not? And so we have, seeing that with our eyes only, we have a sense of despair that goes with it, and disappointment, discouragement, like it's getting so bad. Uh, and so we, we, we have sometimes one of two thoughts. One is, well, I hope uh, it, it won't get so bad while I'm still alive. So, you know, what happens after I'm died? It doesn't matter so much, or Lord Jesus come back, or some other kind of thing, right? But you see, God has promises in his word for a coming time. How he's going to institute that, in what manner, I'm not sure. But can you imagine a time when the knowledge of God will be so fluent that everyone will have that knowledge? It tells us in the book of Malachi, another place where there was prophecies about the future, that it says, in those days, all of the cooking pots in the house will have this stamped on them, holy to the Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Go down to Walmart and buy some stuff, and <laughs> instead of saying, you know, made in China, it'll say, holy to the Lord. You buy a new car, it won't say, body by Fisher, it'll say, holy to the Lord. Those days are coming. Now, in what manner and what means, I don't know. It's just that God is not wanting us to be discouraged because as we look at the first character of God, he is still king of kings and lord of lords and nothing is going to happen, absolutely nothing, without his knowledge and his allowance. You can bank your, you can hang that on your refrigerator, right? You can be sure of that. So in the midst of difficulty, you see, if we look carefully at the pattern of history, we'll find that, biblical history especially, that there were times when God actually allowed judgment to come uh, in order to accomplish his greater purpose. We're not above that in our country. And so therefore, it's interesting days, but uh, you need to be assured, first of all, you'll never be discouraged, you'll never be frustrated, you'll never be disappointed, you'll never be uh, just upset about things because he's still in charge, you see. Okay? That's very, very important in our day. Okay, so let's go to the next PowerPoint. The first one I'd like to look at with you tonight is, is under the concept of God is our King. And the key verse is Revelation 19.16. Uh, let's look at it in context because it has a little bit more information than just that phrase because it speaks of the Lord Jesus in his victory position, 1916. 
beginning with verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he will smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He always was, he is, and he always will be in that particular position. The book of Ezekiel has some 150 passages alone that give reference to God as king. Deuteronomy um, 33.20, There is none like the Lord who made the heavens. These will be all up on the screen, so you don't need to look at them in the scriptures. Or uh, Psalm 8 and uh, 1 and 9. It begins and ends with this phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Uh, The interesting thing about Psalm 22, you may remember that Psalm 22 is a picture of the suffering of Jesus. Remember? All my bones are out of joint. All the things that are mentioned that Jesus experienced at the cross are mentioned in chapter 22 of the Psalms. But when it gets to the end of the Psalm, it says this statement. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. It doesn't seem that way now, but it's true. And then Psalm 24, which is a description of the authority of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. Um, Let's look at Psalm 24 because it has some more context with it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He is founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. When we get over to the second part of the psalm, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be you lifted up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And one day, ladies and gentlemen, you will have the opportunity to see him face to face. The King of kings and Lord of lords not just of this little speck of a dust that we call earth, but over all the universe, the awesome thing that God will do. Psalm 47, verse 2, The Lord Most High is awesome. He is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The word feared has a concept of not to be afraid of unless you're in wrong relationship with him, but it has to do with a reverential attitude. And therefore, we ought to have great reverence for the Lord. We live in a society that has zero reverence for the Lord. Zero. And his name is flaunted everywhere uh, where you go in terms of any type of media or just the way people are. So God has called his people that they might be reverent before the Lord. We have a great respect for who he is. Turn with me to the book of Malachi. That's not on your... Uh, PowerPoint, but it'll be important to note this. In the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, it says, now this people in the book of Malachi, it's about 400 B.C., 400 years before Christ, they had come up, they came back to the land earlier, if you remember, under Ezra and Nehemiah, under uh, uh, the high priest Joshua and... and, and uh, Anyway, they'd come back at that time a little bit earlier. And now they had rebuilt the temple and the walls, but it was so small. It said the people who remembered the old temple wept because it was so small in consideration. 
And the people became discouraged after a while because it didn't seem like it was going anywhere and things in the political world became more difficult for them. So in verse um, 13, here is what God said to them. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, well, what do you mean, God? We don't haven't spoken against you. But here's what you said, verse 14. It's in vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we keep his charge? We've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. We've done all this religious stuff, and it doesn't seem to do any good. So I think we'll just make a switch here, because nothing seems to happen. So we're going to call the arrogant blessed, and those who are doers of the wickedness will be built up, and those who test God escape, so let's just let it happen, and we'll join them. But then please note what happens in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. These are small groups of people. Spoke to one another. But notice the rest of the verse in 16. The Lord gave attention. He heard it. And a book of remembrance was written by God about these people. Isn't that amazing? It is God who wrote the book of remembrance. And what the Lord says in verse 17, they will be mine on that day when I prepare my possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son. So you will at that time be able to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous, the one who serves God and doesn't. Those are the ones that God looks to. You see, God throughout time and history has always had this one thing. The Bible calls it a remnant. Sometimes it's a small group, sometimes it's a large group. The time of the flood, it numbered eight. But sometimes many more. Do you remember the days of uh, Elijah? A remarkable prophet stood against the most evil king that Israel had, Ahab, and his even even more evil wife, Jezebel, stared him down, won a great victory at Mount Carmel. And then remember, Elijah went out into the wilderness and he was discouraged. God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, well, they've been, they tear down your altars, they killed the prophets, and I'm the only one left. And God said to him, I've got 7,000 men in Israel who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You don't know much about them, but they're there. See, that's the remnant, right? That's the remnant. God will always have his remnant. They'll be there. And all over the world, God is raising up a remnant, see? And they will be in concert to what the Lord wants, you see? Let's supposing that you have in the auditorium this morning, this afternoon, this evening, a master grand piano. Very expensive instrument. And this piano is so valuable, it takes a world-famous tuner to come on occasion and tune this instrument. Let's say that in Germany there is a sister piano that's just like this one. Okay? And this world-famous tuner goes to that on regular uh, times to tune that piano. They are in absolute concert. Now, these pianos never meet because they don't like to travel and it's expensive. But when someone sits down and plays that one in Germany and this one, they're absolutely in perfect concert, perfect harmony. You see what I'm saying? 
Holy Spirit is the one. How do you suppose the church survived in the early church? I mean, they didn't have buildings like this. Or it was illegal to have a building. They met in homes under, under uh, uh, cover. How did they survive? And uh, why wasn't there heresy that came in and devastated the church? Why did they remain some purity in the church? Have you ever wondered about that? Let's say Antioch, which was the third largest uh, city in the Roman Empire, uh, where a lot of the Christians were, including Paul. And let's put their uh, you know, population was different then and now, but let's put their population as just kind of a ballpark figure, 100,000. Even Roman historians who are not Christians maintain that in the height of Christianity's growth, 10% of the population had become Christian. So in that city, there were 10,000 believers. Where? Not in auditoriums like this. They were in homes. Now, how many people can you get in the average home? Homes being what they are now and then. Oh, 30, 40, depending on their age, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, let's say that, yeah. So let's say that packed 50 in. What's 50 into 10,000? How many churches were operating on a given Sunday, Lord's Day, in the city of Antioch? And the question is, who are these leaders? Where did they come from? Newly uh, converts and so on. What was it that kept them pure? Two things. And that is very relevant to us. One was persecution. See, persecution keeps you pure. Because you'll never argue about denominational problems if you... <laughs> you're going to die for your faith. You won't ever argue with somebody about the efficacy of infant versus adult baptism if you're going to die the next day. It doesn't matter. See what I'm saying? Persecution keeps us pure in our doctrinal forms. And secondly, the Holy Spirit was in this movement, you see. And he purposed that it wouldn't die, but it would be renewed. And so that same thing is happening across the world today. And whereas we see, in many respects, Christianity in America diminishing, it's not so in other countries, as you well know. And it doesn't matter to God where. You know, We have no special claim on God. It's true that we have a heritage that's wonderful, uh, by and large. It's true that we have people from our earlier uh, history in this country that were godly people. That's all true. But if we continue... To mock God, to do things that He has, that are heinous to God, like the death of the babies. If we continue to do these things and mock Him to His face, He has no obligation to save us from anything. The only ones that He will be concerned about are the remnant. That's you, that He has His special hand on. The rest of it, He's going to deal with. Therefore, we need to keep that in mind as well. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Uh, who shall not fear you, king of the nations? But let's look at this one in Daniel, because this is God speaking. This is not Daniel. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest monarch the world ever knew, because he was an absolute monarch. See, there, there are totalitarian leaders that have been subject to people more or less. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was absolute monarch. His every wish was law. And according to the book of Daniel, Daniel, who became prime minister 
at a very early age, next to Nebuchadnezzar. According to Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar went stark raving mad. And God allowed him to go through seven years of this, um, this madness. And when he was brought back to his senses, here's what he said. I praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven. What a mission for him to make. Because you see, up to that time, he was considered King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the title that he and some of these other rulers took upon themselves. The next one is similar to that because it's found in Daniel 6 where the Persian leader named Darius at that point in time said after Daniel was released from the lion's den, if you remember the story, that it was Darius that said he is, he, God, is a living God and endures forever. So much for idols in Persia then at that point in time. And then moving to the next one, you remember this from the Palm Sunday experience. The prophecy was, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation, humble and nodded on a donkey. Even the foal of a donkey. And you remember that the Lord Jesus came that way in a very humble way. Although it is also evident that kings in the Old Testament did come that way. Including David. Okay. And then of course we have this next one which is the Christmas story of the wise men from the East who apparently had been affected and influenced by Daniel's prophecies because they came apparently from that region and they came with a large encourage, not three. <laughs> you know, we, we do weird things with traditions, don't we? We three kings of Orient are, <laughs> which is interesting because they weren't three, they weren't kings and they went for the Orient, but it is a nice... It's a nice carol. <laughs> anyway, these, these persons came with great credential. And here and they came to Jerusalem. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? They knew that the Messiah was coming, would be that way. And then something that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. The rest of it is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're actually asking that the kingdom of God might be part of us because you see, Jesus himself said on one occasion, the kingdom of God is within you. Right? That is what we pray for, among other things. Okay. Kingdom of heaven, parables, mentioned by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then interesting in Matthew 16. Let's turn to that passage, please. Matthew chapter 16. It was the occasion where Jesus asked them a question one day. Who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets or Elijah or somebody. And then he asked them a very pointed question. Who do you say that I am? And you remember it was Peter that uh, responded and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus was impressed with him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is heaven. And I'll tell you, Peter, on this rock or confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The interesting phrase, is it not? Right? The gates of hell shall not prevail against the Christian gospel. It's not the, we think of it as the other way around. Like we develop a fortress mentality. You know? <laughs> Let's stay within our walls. 
so that all this bad stuff can't happen to us. Jesus said it's the other way around. The enemy is the one that needs to protect his stuff against the infiltration of the gospel. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom has to do with, well, notice what he said. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Well, what is it that binds you? Is it not your sins? Isn't What looses you so that you're free to be the person that you ought to be? Your sins, right? So therefore, there's a binding and loosing concept. The keys of the kingdom, then, is the declaration to people who believe that they are totally free and forgiven. The release to, for them to know that they are truly and fully and totally forgiven. And that can be assured. You see, that's the key of the kingdom. And likewise, the opposite. If one does not respond to God, no matter how nice they are, how religious they happen to be, they will be under condemnation to hell unless there's a change. Okay, let's look at the next. Uh, Jesus came in Acts 1 over 40 days speaking to them of the kingdom of God. Here he is, uh, crucified, risen from the dead, comes back for 40 days. And what's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about the kingdom of God. And that's what it says. All these things that they didn't get really well earlier, they're now starting to sink into their minds. And, and if we go three verses further, it is said that uh, they begin to ask him, Lord, is it now that you're going to establish, you're going to, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Am I quoting that right? Let me make sure. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> Mine on the right track may not be the right. <laughs> Verse 6. Yeah. Is it this time you're going to... In other words, is it now, Lord? Israel's going to be a great nation. We're going to throw off the yoke of Roman bondage. He's hated Romans. And we're going to have the King of kings and Lord of lords sitting on the throne. Is it now, Lord? And they missed the whole point, you see. Because his kingdom is totally different. Uh, notice that, uh, if we look at that later, it was to Pilate that Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And so Jesus answered to the disciples, where it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has fixed on his own authority. This is what you need to know, Acts 1.8. You should receive power, and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and you should be my witnesses. That's what you need to know. Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and let's turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is a very contemporary passage. Verse 25 of Hebrews 12, 12:25. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him, who warned from on earth, warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of things which can be shaken. God is in the process of really shaking stuff up. And lest we get confused by that and fearful, this is the way God's going to operate. Because he's going to show this world who really is in charge. And there'll be nothing that anybody can do about that. So therefore, in verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, 
The kingdom that you belong to cannot be shaken. It cannot be affected by anything. And then let's go to Revelation 1. It's on the scripture up there, but let's go to Revelation 1 because of the context that's there as well. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, He has made us, He has made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father. But you can actually um, put the words together and let, uh, let kingdom almost be an adjective to priests, a kingdom of priests. In other words, we shall be priests to the Lord throughout all eternity. Now, just what that means and what it entails, I really don't know. But you don't believe that you were... First of all, you do believe you were put here for a purpose, don't you? Not an accident. You have a purpose. And that purpose was planned by God from eternity past. You can be sure of that, okay? Secondly, why do you think that purpose ends when you go to be with the Lord? You're going to sit around in a cloud with a harp? <laughs> or maybe a perpetual church service? That to me sounds rather boring, by the way. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, and what, is, what does that all mean, you know? In other words, the purpose for which God created you is only a start now. It is going to be fulfilled in a great way when you go to be with Him, in which there's no more sorrow or pain or suffering and all that other thing that goes along with it too. So it ought to make you uh, excited about the days ahead. Now realizing, of course, when I say this, I'm probably closer to the death than you are I mean, time-wise. I mean, you know, who knows, but... <laughs> What I'm saying, the number of years are left uh, for me is probably minimal. But the point being that nonetheless we can be excited about what God has in store for us. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 8. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet compared to what that day is going to be. Okay. And this has to do in Revelation. The seventh angel sound their loud voices. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And there we have that passage from John 18, where Jesus, under, under um, duress, condemnation by Pontius Pilate, who represented all the authority of imperial Rome, has a discussion, a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And we are told in the few verses that follow it, on this statement, Pilate was the more afraid. Here he is representing the authority of imperial Rome, the power that controlled that world. And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of that world, and it scared him to death because he realized he was not in a right relationship with that king. Okay, we're going to stop with that and take a break, and we'll continue after the break. So uh, where is uh, Craig? There we are. <laughs>